So this morning we come to the theme verses and the greatest letter ever written, Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome. James Boyce wrote of these verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He said, they are the most important in the letter and perhaps in all literature. They are the theme of the epistle and the essence of Christianity. All of Christianity can be boiled down to these two verses. And in fact, the remainder of Paul's letter to the Romans is an expansion, an explanation, and an application of these two verses. And one of the great things about Romans and all of the scripture is you can understand great truths by just reading it. And then when you begin to study it, when you begin to dig deeper into it, you discover great riches and marvelous depth. And you just keep going deeper and deeper and and deeper into it. I thought of a quote by Augustine this past week. Augustine was the, the church father who lived in the fifth century. And I thought of him when I was watching a news clip on the internet. And maybe you saw this, for some unknown reason, swimming elephants are having to be rescued off the coast of Sri Lanka. Some elephants, which are normally good swimmers, got swept out to sea, and they were getting tired, and they were having a hard time keeping their trunks above water. If you ever watched any of those videos how elephants swim, for the most part, their head goes below the water, and they put that trunk up like a snorkel, and then they're really buoyant, but they just keep going up and down. They were getting tired, so the Sri Lanka Navy had to rescue them, and it was an amazing thing to watch these divers get down in the water with them and tie these ropes under their big bellies and stuff and get a hold of them. And then, with really pretty small boat, I thought, they, they gently towed the elephants back to shore. So what does this have to do with Augustine? You're probably wondering that. Augustine, in his confessions, gave credit to the letter to the Romans for his conversion to Christ. But he said this about God's word. The Bible is shallow enough for a child to walk and deep enough for an elephant to swim. So maybe we have an immediate application here in the book of Romans already. You can plumb the depths of Romans and still keep your trunk above water. You can plumb the depths of Romans and still keep your trunk above water. So please turn with me once again to these all-important verses, to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that 16th verse again. The Apostle Paul has just written that he is eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to bear some fruit among them. He wants to preach the gospel. He wants to minister in the area of his spiritual gift to them and them minister to him and their spiritual gifts. And in this, on account of this zeal, he says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And at the outset, we wonder why he would put it in the negative. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, it's a figure of speech called a litotes, where through understatement and affirmative is expressed by the negative or the contrary. Now, you're wondering if you can get air. So let me explain what that, what that means. For example, if you say, he's not a bad athlete, what do you mean? Well, he's really a a good athlete. Or this hasn't been such a bad day. It means it's a pretty good day. So when Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, he means I glory in the gospel. I'm proud of the gospel. So why didn't he just say, I glory in the gospel? 
I can't wait to get there because I'm proud of the gospel. Why does he express it in the negative? I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's because of the real potential to be ashamed of the gospel. There were many reasons that a first century Roman who would read Paul's letter and hear that he is coming to Rome might feel a bit uncomfortable about this Jewish man coming to a fascistic, a really good city like the Rome, <laughs> to preach about a Galilean carpenter prophet who was executed by the Roman government. Not only was he executed, but Jesus was executed in the most humil humiliating manner possible, the most shameful way possible, stripped naked and nailed to a cross. Remember what the writer of the Hebrews said about Jesus' crucifixion? He said, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, and what? Despising the shame. The shame. The cross was the most humiliating way, most shameful way to die ever invented by humankind. The word translated despising and despising the shame means to think little of it. To think little of it. Jesus endured the shame. He thought little of the shame, even though the shame was horrendous, because he thought little of it in comparison to what the cross would achieve, our salvation. Paul wanted to go to Rome. But how is the shameful death of a Jewish carpenter going to play in Rome? How is that message going to go over in the, capitalized, uh, uh, the capital of the civilized world? That a Jew, who was already despised because of his race, who lived in a despicable land, according to the Romans, was put to death by civilized Romans. How's that going to play in Rome? Most Romans would say to Paul, your, your message better appeal to the educated or it's not going to fly here. Or your message needs to offer political solutions to the pressing needs of the empire or it's not going to gain a hearing here. It had better offer some answers to the massive problems of slavery, greed, lust, and violence, or the people of Rome won't listen. As you may know, shame is a very powerful motivator. It's a negative motivator. In American politics today, apparently shame is considered by protesters to be the most powerful force. Town hall meetings all across our land when the congressmen are meeting with their people or they're giving political speeches. As a cabinet secretary was trying to go into a school recently from the U.S. Senate gallery just this past week, you hear the protesters shouting what? Shame, 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 shame. That's, that's a powerful motivator. How's the gospel going to appeal to Romans who have already cried shame, 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 shame when they put Jesus on the cross? How do you proclaim the gospel to those who want to shame you? Who want to humiliate, humiliate you because you're not as smart, you're not as cultured, you really don't understand evolution, you really don't get this, that, or the other thing. You're just stupid, ignorant Christian people who believe in a carpenter who died on a cross and came back from the grave. How stupid, how foolish are you guys? Paul used the negative phrase, not ashamed, because he knew the real potential to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Lord Jesus had given a stern warning about this after talking about the necessity of picking up one's cross and following him daily. 
He said in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is serious stuff. Whenever we try to water down the gospel to make it more palatable to postmodern ears, we live in a postmodern era where it used to be in the modern area, all, era, all truth was relative. You have your truth, I have my truth, we're, we're good. Now we're in postmodern times where I have my tr- truth and your truth is stupid. <laughs> because I have studied. That's, that's what we live in. So we, we have that, that temptation to say, well, let's not get into this sin stuff or lifestyle stuff too soon, okay? That, that, that's going to turn people off. Let's start from... When I was in college, I'm okay and you're okay. That was a best-selling book. We're, we're all good. Now let's get together and, and out of our own goodness <laughs> come up to some solutions to this. What does that say about how we really feel about the gospel? Or In order to get people to listen, we make claims that the gospel was never intended for. Wealth, prosperity, comfort, worldly success, political or cultural change. What does that say about what we really feel about the gospel? But it goes even deeper than that in our church culture in America. There are churches all across this land that will not put a cross in their worship center. And the reason they do that, because it turns people off when they come in the building. So they won't put it. pastor told about a church he visited where they just opened up an espresso bar. Nothing wrong with an espresso bar. Nice welcoming place for visitors, new people, seekers. They decorated the room to make it look like a really good downtown coffee shop. But they explicitly forbade any religious objects, posters or tracks, anything Christian to be in that room. Nothing Christian about it. But here's the kicker. They told the mature believers in the church they could not go into the espresso bar because they might turn people off. You're not, you're not welcome. Yeah, exactly. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And why wasn't he ashamed of the gospel? Because his main message focused on the main need, the primary need of every human being, whether the most religious Jew or the most educated, worldly, immoral Greek, the need to be reconciled to the holy God. The main question in Romans is this. How can I be right before God? How can you be right before God? How am I justified before God? And until that question is answered, nothing else matters. Nothing. Every human being born on this planet is one day going to stand before the creator of all things and the question is going to be, are you right with him? So let's look at Romans chapter 1 verse 18 for a moment. The 18th verse follows verse 17. That makes sense. But the 18th verse begins with a little three-letter word, for. End of verse 17. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Why? Why by faith? For, because, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We'll have much more to say about the wrath of God next week, but you don't hear much about the wrath of God these days, do you? Being preached or being taught. 
But the righteousness of God that is revealed in verse 17 demands that the wrath of God be revealed in verse 18. So let's turn it back again a little bit to the main message that Paul intends in the book of Romans. The, Paul's theme in Romans is God. It starts with God. It ends with God. It's all about God and the good news that comes from God. How sinners can be delivered from his righteous judgment and be reconciled to him. In a word, that's called salvation. Salvation. How sinners can be delivered from his righteous judgment and be reconciled to him. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes. Therefore, we must believe it and we must proclaim it boldly, no matter how much the world wants us to be ashamed of it or we are tempted to be ashamed. So he says the gospel is God's power for salvation. So in verse 16, we see that salvation is the main need of every person. Verse 16 again, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. It's the main need of everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now Paul anticipates the main point that he's going to make beginning at verse 18 and going all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. He's going to spend two full chapters, half a chapter, a full chapter, and half of another chapter or more to show that everybody has sinned and thus everybody falls under God's righteous condemnation. Every single person falls under the righteous condemnation of God. Why? Because we've all sinned, whether religious Jew or moral or religious person or the worldly Greek, the immoral person, or even the atheist. We are alienated from God who is absolutely righteous. Thus, we're all under God's wrath. And he says it's the power of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? The Greek word translated saved basically means to be rescued, to be rescued. This last week, if you saw it on the news, those hikers in Arizona, there was the flash floods and, and there was these guys standing on rocks with raging floodwaters coming all around them. And, you know, they, I always enjoy this. They lower these things from a helicopter and pull these guys out. They airlifted them from the rocks. And so they were rescued. They were saved. Some of us saw the elephants being rescued by being towed to shore. Salvation refers to being rescued from God's wrath and the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. So the proclamation of the gospel is a rescue mission. Now salvation means three things. I'm just going to mention these briefly. Salvation means being delivered or rescued from the penalty of sin. Being rescued from the penalty of sin. And we are rescued in that way from the very moment that we believe. And salvation also means being delivered or rescued from the power of sin. We're rescued from the power that sin has over us. As we grow in godliness and then being delivered, being rescued, one day we'll be rescued from the very presence of sin when we stand blameless in his glory. We're rescued from the penalty of sin. We're rescued from the power of sin. We're rescued from the presence of sin. Salvation means to be rescued. Now, salvation has very many positive aspects. We enjoy a reconciled relationship with God. 
Romans 5.10. We experience his peace, Romans 5.1. We receive all the unfathomable riches of Christ. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 3. We experience God's love, Romans 5.8. But if we think we need to sell the gospel by glossing over the negative aspects of salvation and only focusing on the positive aspects of it, we fall in temptation, fall into the trap of being ashamed of the gospel because we don't tell people about the rescue, which is the central part of the gospel. We do not need God's salvation, and Christ did not need to die on the cross if we're all basically good people. We just need a little encouragement to be right with God. We do not need a crucified Savior if our main need is to polish our self-esteem or learn some happy hints for helpful hints for happy living, which sells books all, all over the place. We need a Savior who is crucified for our sins because we all by nature are ungodly rebels who are under God's wrath. It's offensive to the natural man. And if we want to pull our point punches at this point, we miss the very heart of the gospel. The gospel is only good news to the person who realizes that he or she needs to be rescued, needs to be saved, or they will perish eternally. And the reason that Paul was not ashamed of this message is because the gospel is the power of God. It says the power of God for salvation. So this is the second thing we learn about salvation Salvation requires the very power of God. Now, to me, it's significant that the gospel does not tell people about the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. You know, there's no use telling people what God can or might do for them until they are rescued. Because that's never going to happen until they're rescued. So it's easy to fall into the trap again of telling a person that if you accept Jesus Christ, this will happen and God will do this and that and the other thing. Maybe, maybe not. You really don't know. You know, I've used the, the little track for spiritual laws a lot, you know, for, came out from Campus Crusade for Christ. And the first law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, if that was a truism, how does it work in Syria today? When you come to a place where their church has been built, ISIS is coming at them, he's going to behead them. Oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel doesn't begin with the love of God. And until they're really rescued, they don't know what God's going to do them. The gospel is the power of God. It means that salvation is, is not something that sinners can attain by their own efforts or good works. Again, if that were so, Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. Salvation is not a joint project where the God has done his part, now I've got to do my part, because without God's power, nothing happens. Reminds me of a story that John MacArthur told a few years back about the old days when the vacuum cleaner salesman would go door to door, and this vacuum cleaner salesman went out to a farmhouse, and he walked into the house as the, the woman opened the door with his typical motor mouth approach, and and didn't wait for the lady to say a word. He opened the door and all of a sudden he was in the living room. And he said, ma'am, I'm, I'm here to tell you about the vacuum cleaner. It's, it's going to suck up everything in your house. You have to be careful. You might even lose your floor. It's so powerful. And I'm going to. And, 
And, and, and she started, well, wait, uh, and he just kept going. I'm going to show you how much this will do. And he dumped ashes in the middle of the floor out of his bag, and the garbage, the junk, and everything. And he said, ma'am, if this vacuum doesn't suck this thing up in two minutes, I will eat it with a spoon. And finally, she got an opportunity to speak, and she said, well, you better start eating because we ain't got no electricity. <laughs> Before you sell the product, you better know that there's any power, right? Power to make it operate. And that's the reason the Apostle Paul was not ashamed, because he knew the power of the gospel. He knew the gospel would change lives in spite of what men thought. His supreme passion was to see men saved by the power of gospel. And in other words, as Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says, salvation is from the Lord. It's from the Lord. It requires the very power of God. And so the gospel is not helpful advice that a person may decide to try out. It's the very power of God that brings new life. It brings salvation to those who are dead in their sins. It brings salvation and rescues them from God's just wrath and condemnation. And that is because God is righteous and holy and mankind is not. We all deserve God's holy wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So how does a sinner get right with God? What is it about salvation that makes a sinner righteous and right with God? In verse 17 of Romans chapter 1, we see that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Here again, we learn something about salvation. Salvation demands that the righteousness of God be upheld and applied to every guilty sinner. This explains why the gospel is the power of God for salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, with the idea of the righteousness of God, we get to go deep. So you might have to keep your trunks above water here for a little bit. What is the righteousness of of God. Notice that Paul does not lead off with the love of God in the gospel, but rather he leads off with the righteousness of God. For sure, the gospel displays God's love for sinners. We'll see in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was love that compelled, love that motivated God to, to save us. John three sixteen. But none of us, for God so loved the world, that none of us should perish. And so it was love. But the love of God is not the beginning point of the gospel. The love of God is not the beginning point of the gospel. In fact, I did a little word search this week and thinking about this. I looked for the word love in the book of Acts and it's not there. Did you ever realize that? It's not there at all. We have Pentecost and Peter preaching the gospel at Pentecost. We have the lame man who was healed and Peter and John preaching the gospel again. We have uh, Stephen, who was the first martyr, preaching the gospel in that long discourse about the history of Israel and God's fulfillment. And, and we have Paul before uh, the, the, the governors and, and uh, the kings declaring the gospel. We have all these thousands and thousands and thousands of people that were saved and none of, a, none of them were saved because they said, God loves you. They all were saved because 
God is loving, but he's also righteous. And if we just view him as loving, it's easy to follow him because, well, he's our good buddy in the sky and he makes me feel good and he loves me so much. It doesn't matter what I live or how I live or what I do or what I believe. But the righteousness of God presents a problem because we know that we all have sin. Everybody knows that. If God is righteous and we are not, then we need a Savior. So what does it mean when he says that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed? Righteousness is not so much a moral quality here as it is a legal standing. It's a right standing before God. A right standing before God made possible in faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's not our own righteousness at all. But it's the righteousness by which we are clothed in Christ when we receive him. On the cross, Jesus took all of our iniquity, every sin we'd ever committed, all our iniquity, all our wickedness, and he took it upon himself in exchange when we trust in him for salvation, we take, as it were, or God puts all his righteousness on us. When we stand before God and when he sees us, because we are in Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ. The great exchange, it's called. This is Paul's main thought. The gospel reveals how sinners may be righteous or justified before God by faith. Turn over to the third chapter of Romans for a minute. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. For two, two and a half chapters in here, Paul is going to pick up his thought again after that time, but uh, he's been showing whether a person is a Jew or a Gentile or a moral person or a wicked person, all stand before God condemned. He's going to make that argument and make that argument. And then Paul picks up the thought of the righteousness of God again in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has, what, faith in Jesus Christ. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel in that he can grant right standing to sinners because his son met the righteous requirements of his perfect law and died to pay the penalty that sinners deserve. Thus sinners are justified not by their own righteousness, not by keeping the law, not by go doing good deeds, but rather they are justified by God, and I'm going to use a theological term here, imputing the righteousness of Christ to them by faith. Imputing means to be reckoned to, counted to their, to their account. You know, one of the problems with sin and one of the problems with living a life without God is there are no credits. It's all debits. 
you know, we like our, our bank book to balance, and so we apply that to our lives and say, I started out as a pretty good guy. And the Bible doesn't teach that. You started out clear down at the bottom. But, you know, the people think that, you know, and I've done some bad things, and, and that's a debit on my account. I've done some good things, and that's a credit. I've done some bad things, and, and those kind of things. So, so we try to balance all that out and say, well, I've really done some good things. God says you start down here at the bottom as a sinner, and everything you do just takes you down. And nothing brings you back up. Nothing counts. But in Christ, God reckons or imputes the righteousness of Christ to our account. And what is the righteousness of Christ? It's off the chart. <laughs> in credits. And here's the good news. Nothing brings it down. Nothing brings it down. Philippians 3.9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Salvation upholds God's righteousness by applying it to the sinner who believes. So this leads us to the next point about salvation. Salvation is by faith from start to finish. Paul mentions faith or believing four times in these two verses, verses 16 and 17. He says, to everyone who believes, believing means to have faith. Then he says, from faith to faith. And then he says, the righteous man shall live by faith. If salvation comes through faith plus good works, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches and virtually all the cults teach, if it comes through good works, that's not good news. Because you never know when you've piled up enough good works to qualify. But if God declares guilty sinners to be righteous or justified the instant they believe, that's good news. So we can be clear on several things here. First, saving faith in Christ is not a general belief that he is Savior. It's not a general belief. Yeah, I know he's the Savior. I believe that because the Bible says the demons believe that and they're not saved. Rather, saving faith has three elements, and we're just going to go through these very quickly. With the mind, we must understand the content of the gospel, who Jesus is, what his death on the cross means, and that he was raised from the dead. That is the content of the gospel. Uh, sometimes people call uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to turn there, the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel in a nutshell. I mean, this is the good basic stuff. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. I make known to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And then verse 3 and 4, here it is. This is the content of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died on the cross for our sins. Second, that he was buried, and he was then raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Who Jesus is, what his death on the cross means, and he was raised from the dead. That's the content of the gospel. We must understand the content. Secondly, we must have a heart response to the truth of the gospel. We must have a heart response to the truth of the gospel. Where we agree that it's true. 
And our agreement causes our hearts to be sorrowful over our sin. But it also causes us to rejoice in the free gift of his grace. And then, thirdly, saving faith includes commitment to Christ. We put our trust in Christ. We trust in him and his death on the cross as our only hope of eternal life. And then we follow him as Lord. Repentance means a change of mind, a change of direction. We were going one way, now we're going another way. Which way are we going because of repentance? We're following Christ. Wherever he goes, I'm going where he leads me. So saving faith is not a work that we do, but simply receiving all that God offers to us in Christ. And saving faith is the hand that receives the free gift of God. So we need to understand something more about saving faith. We need to understand what Paul means by the phrase, from faith to faith. We receive the gospel by faith and we go on living by faith from faith to faith. The word translated believes here and everyone who believes, it's a present participle. That means it's the one who keeps on believing. You believe now, you keep on believing, 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 believing all the way through. It brings out the fact that saving faith is not a one-time event where you had faith, you got saved, but saving faith is an ongoing, lifelong process. We are justified, we're in right standing with God the instant we believe, but as we keep on believing the gospel, God keeps on revealing the fact to us that we have a right standing before him on the basis of God's substitutionary death on the cross. So we keep singing the old rugged cross every time we have an opportunity to do that. Faith applies the imputed righteousness of Christ, his righteousness given to us, so that we increasingly rejoice in Christ alone as our only hope of eternal life. In other words, we never come to a place where we trust in our good works. We never come to that place. Our good works is sufficient for or even contributing to our salvation in any way whatsoever. It's never and never, never was and never shall be saved by faith but kept by works. But we just got to keep doing that. But according to a recent Pew study, the vast majority of evangelical Christians who were surveyed believe that their good works somehow contribute to their salvation. That is not the gospel. The Bible says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. Good works are the result of our right standing with God, our faith. Our love for him. They're not the cause. But I want to close with this. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He could have said for the Jews, plural first, and also to the Greeks, plural. But he put it in the singular. You see, salvation is an individual and personal matter. Being a member of the Jewish race will not get you saved, even though the Jews were God's chosen people. Being an American or being a member of a Christian family will not get you saved. Going to church will not get you saved even more, even the same way that sitting in a car and making motor noises will make you a car. <laughs> right? <laughs> you must personally believe in Jesus Christ. 
You must understand the content of the gospel. You must receive it, as it were, in the heartfelt, and you must follow Jesus. By the Jew first, Paul means that the gospel first comes, that the, the first gospel came first in history to the Jews. God chose Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob as the race to which he would reveal his salvation. It was through the Jews that the Savior came, and so Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews. But here Paul's emphasis is on the universal offer of the gospel. It is for everyone who will believe. It is for the righteous Jew who will believe. It's for the pagan Greek who will believe. None are excluded. The good news is for you, whatever your background, whoever you are, whatever you have done. Are you a a pretty good guy, try to do things right, live by a religious standard even, you're, you're a moral person. You must not trust in any of those things, but as a sinner, receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. Or maybe a person's an atheist, or a very immoral person, or a greedy, cheating businessman. That person must also turn from these sins, cry out to God, to be merciful, and the sinner will go home justified. Go home justified. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes.